Welcome back, everyone, to another eye-opening episode of the Counter Narrative Podcast. Today, we are delving deep into a misunderstood and overlooked topic: toxic masculinity and redefining gender equality. Absolutely, Rianos. It's a privilege to welcome you all to this episode. Joining us to shed light on these critical issues is a distinguished guest, Professor Michael Flood, an expert in gender studies and a prominent voice advocating for equality. Professor Flood, thank you for joining us for this groundbreaking conversation. It's my pleasure. Uh, so today we are unraveling the factors behind the alarming rise of the Red Pill movement and the male supremacist influencers. Dr. Flood, what are your insights into what's responsible for this trend and the impact that it has on young boys and men? Look, the first thing I would say is that influencers like Andrew Tate and other, other men have been around for a very long time. They have long been in, uh, in Western societies, in African societies, in many countries, um, men and sometimes women who preach uh, patriarchy who you know who want to tell us that men should dominate women men should be the heads of households and should um, have the power and the decisions in households and that anything else is unnatural is dangerous and we need to you know put men back um, in powerful positions so Andrew Tate and people like him are not new uh, and one of the reasons that Andrew Tate is and other male supremacist influences are successful is because they draw on very old ideas, very old sexist ideas, um, you know, and they, and they uh, re-energize those ideas. But they also are successful, I think, at the moment, because some men do feel, uh, do feel like things are changing too quickly, you know, gender roles are changing, women now have more power than they used to, some men feel confused, some men feel angry, some men feel under attack, and male supremacist influences um, can sympathize with those men and you know, make those men feel listened to. Another reason why those influences are successful is because they try to sell men and boys a very traditional image of masculinity, where to be a man is to be rich, to be strong, to be surrounded by lots of beautiful women, uh, to have money and cars and sex and so on. Um, and you know, that is attractive for some boys and men. The final reason why influencers have been able to be successful now is they have been very skilled at using the internet and using the internet and social media and marketing strategies to kind of spread their message. So they have an influence, which I think is far greater than they should because of their ability to use uh, the internet and other methods. Oh, it says to be a man is to be rich and to have car, women and sex. I think it's really dangerous, T. What do you think? Yes, you know, okay, so you know one of the uh, things I, from what you said, is that they sell traditional values to them. You know, these boys and young men grew up seeing that their parents or their fathers were like the head of the home and they could see the traditional setting and they want that. But now they are seeing that women are becoming more um, more enlightened and aware of stuff like that. So they don't want it to change. That's why they are fighting against it. And like, like that's what you said from like from your um, from your explanation of what's, of what's going on right now. Thank you so much for that. I think another factor is that 
some traditional male roles uh, are now um, are now increasingly difficult for men to have. So many men in families, they are no longer the only person who brings home the money, who does work. They are no longer the only one with access to money, with access to resources. And I see that as a good thing. And I think that's a good thing, a good thing for men themselves. But I think some men struggle. Some men find that hard, especially if they don't have work and their wives um, do have work. You know, gender roles are shifting because of economic changes. Uh, you know, in countries in Africa and countries around the world, um, uh, capitalism, you know, economic changes, globalization uh, have produced rapid social changes. And I think for some people, those changes can be challenging. And people like Andrew Tate offer easy, simple answers to those challenges. Answers which in fact are dangerous, which are dangerous for women, but also for men themselves. Thank you so much for that insightful answer to the question. So you know that from what I mentioned earlier about how parents also, like what is saw their parents doing, also play an impact on this. So we see that it's worth noting that fathers play a significant role in shaping their son's perspective. So Professor Claude, we're keen to know, to hear your thoughts on how fathers can influence their son to be non-violent and respectful towards women so that we have uh, a future that is free of violence against women. How do you think fathers can help to train the boys to be better and to avoid violence against women? Look, that, that's a great question. And we, we know that fathers shape their children. Fathers, like mothers, shape what kinds of people their sons, their daughters turn out to be. And that can, that can be good or bad. If a father is violent, violent to his wife, uh, if he is violent to his children, then his children may learn that violence is acceptable. That, you know, you can use violence if you disagree with your wife, or you can use violence if you feel that your wife is not behaving properly. And so if a father uses violence, he can pass on a bad message to his children. But if a father instead treats his wife with respect and care, if he deals with conflicts uh, using his words, not using his fists, um, if he addresses conflict and communication in a respectful and a non-violent way, then children learn that as well. So fathers shape their children. And because of that, fathers can shape children who will grow up to have happy, healthy, non-violent relationships. And one of the first ways that fathers can do that is by treating the mothers of their children with respect and care, not using violence, um, talking respectfully about, uh, you know, to their wives and about their mothers, um, to their children. Fathers can um, share the care of domestic work and growing numbers of men in countries around the world are, are appreciating the fact that they now have more opportunity than they used to, to be involved with their children, to spend time with their children, to care for their children and to share the work, and it is often work, the work of caring for children and maintaining a household um, with their wives and partners. And so men can practice nonviolence, practice respect, they can share the care, and men can also model um, respect and nonviolence themselves because our children watch us. Our sons and daughters watch how we behave, how we behave with our wives, with our girlfriends and so on, and they take lessons from that. And so we have to model 
non-violence and gender equality ourselves. Uh, we have to manage conflicts well and so on. So if fathers do those things, um, then fathers like mothers and other adults, uncles, grandmothers, um, other people in children's lives, fathers can play a very powerful role in raising children who will have healthy, happy relationships themselves. I think in order to have a happy and healthy relationship, like Tiara said, is I feel like what this young men see is what the model, and this brings me to my next question. When we hear the phrase, man up, a boy is crying and you hear people say, oh, you're a man, stop crying. He hits his head on their wall and somebody's saying, oh, you're a man, stop crying. The phrase man up continues to resonate despite the troubling rate of male suicide. Can you provide your perspective on whether this phrase is harmful or helpful in today's context? Look, I, I think that the phrase man up is unhelpful. I think the, the, you know, saying to a boy who has hurt himself, a boy who was crying or a boy who was showing weakness to man up, is that is just one example of a whole range of ways in which we often tell boys to be tough, to be strong. And I should say being tough, being strong, these are good qualities in some contexts. If I am playing uh, a sport like rugby league or football, then I need to be tough, I need to be strong. If I am trying to rescue someone from a fire, from a fire in a house or in a hut or whatever, then I have to be strong. But there are other times when those qualities are not so useful. And when someone is hurt, for example, then it, you know, I don't need to be tough or strong. I need to be compassionate. I need to be sensitive. I need to say, are you okay? Can I help you? And I need to respond with empathy and care to them. And so the problem is not with the quality. The problem is not with being tough or strong by itself. The problem is when boys or men are told that they must be tough or strong all the time. And particularly when we tell boys, even boys who've hurt themselves or a boy who is sad, you know, a boy who's sad because his friend has been cruel to him or a young man who is sad because his girlfriend has ended their relationship. Um, we need to give space for those boys to be sad, to cry, to show weakness and so on. Because if we don't do that, we tell men they must always be tough. Then when men are struggling, when a man has, um, you know, had his parents die, for example, or when he's, you know, he's lost his crop because of the floods or because of the drought or something, um, then he has no one to turn to. He cannot tell anybody that he is sad or he is scared or he is, um, you know, upset about what has happened. And he is, he is less able to reach for help. And the research in many countries tells us that when men believe those things, well, when men believe they must always be tough, they must always be strong, they must never ask for help, those men are more likely to consider killing themselves, more likely to consider suicide than men who do ask for help, who men who know that it's okay to show weakness, to show vulnerability sometimes. So in other words, there are various qualities associated with being a man in many countries. In many countries, to be a man, you're expected to be tough, to be strong, to be in control, and so on. And again, those qualities are good some of the time. But if we expect men to live up to those qualities all the time, then we leave men at greater risk of suicide. We, we socialize boys and men so they then have poorer relationships, poorer friendships, and so on. 
And the boys and men who believe more strongly in those stereotypes, those boys and men have poorer health. Um, they're at greater risk of suicide. They are more likely to take risks with their health. With their health, they are less likely to go to the doctor. They are less likely to do what the doctor says when the doctor gives them advice and so on. And so this is one way that masculinity, the expectations um, that boys and men face about being a man, that masculinity is limiting for boys and men themselves. It limits boys and men's own health. You ask me about the phrase man up. I think the phrase man up is just one way that we keep that uh, traditional and limiting model of masculinity in place. When we're talking about men who struggle with their health, if we keep using the phrase man up, element to be strong when they're supposed to just feel emotions. I feel like it's really important to feel every emotion. If you're happy, you laugh. If you're excited about something, you scream. Why is it that when you feel sad as a man, you're not allowed to express that emotion? Yes, it's one of the weakness, actually. Yes, and, and he said something about health. He actually, one way or the other, he affects your health. You're not wanting to speak up. You're not wanting to share stuff. It reminds me of a conversation that we had on Twitter, which uh, had to do with men's health. And so many men said, oh, why would they go to a male doctor to check if they had prostate cancer? So the conversation was, you would rather die than allow another man, another touch, man you. touch you to yes. be sure that you do not carry this disease. How toxic can this, I don't want to say men, how toxic <laughs> can they get? Like, you'd rather die. I'm like, it's, it's in my head, I'm like, is it that bad? What is wrong in sick health? What is wrong in admitting you do not feel or what is wrong in being taught medically? I, I, I want to say that um, this uh, this model of masculinity, this 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 model of what some people call toxic masculinity, it's, it's one model of how to be a man. And there are there are many models of how to be a man. But we know that men who believe more strongly in that model of how to be a man, you have to be tough, you have to be strong, you can't show weakness. Those men are less likely to look after their own health. They're also more likely to risk other people's health. They are less likely to use condoms, for example. So they are more likely to cause an unwanted pregnancy. They are more likely to transmit HIV and other sexually transmitted infections. They are more likely to use violence. And so that model of masculinity is limiting for men and boys themselves, but it also feeds into behavior by some men that harms other people. Men who believe more strongly in that model of masculinity are more likely to use violence against women, more likely to assault their partners, more likely to sexually assault, to, to, to rape or sexually assault a woman. And they are also more likely to, to, to physically assault another man. They are more likely to be involved in violence against other men. And we know that violence between men is a very common problem in many countries. So there are some qualities associated with masculinity that are positive in some ways. Strength, leadership, courage. You know, as I've said, if I am trying to rescue somebody from a burning building, then I need those qualities. But when I have rescued them and I am comforting them uh, and they are, you know, they are scared, they are sad, those qualities are not very helpful. I need other qualities, qualities that our society thinks are feminine qualities, feminine qualities like compassion and empathy and nurturance. But in fact, these are qualities that everybody should have, that everybody should be able to access uh, when, you know, when you need to access those qualities. Thank you, 
you very much for for that uh, so your book engaging men in building gender equality addresses the persistent inequality despite the progress of the women's movement so that women are more enlightened women are when women know their rights more now but we still have like the inequalities is still very evident so how can we effectively dismantle these disparities and do you think marches and protests are enough or do we need to do more what do you think we need to do to be able to like to to bridge that gap look that's a great question and I, and i think we have to be we have to be fair uh, you know the women's movements and feminism have been trying for what, 40 or 50 years uh, you know in the second wave of feminism to to change gender inequalities to change systems of gender gender inequality in countries across the world and as you've said have made very significant progress but there are also still entrenched uh, widespread forms of inequality in economic power in political power in cultural power and in men's and women's everyday relations and one reason that that is true is because gender inequalities are hard to change they are gender inequalities are built into our systems of government into many of our religious institutions built into sport into media and culture built into families and how families raise their sons and daughters and so on and some there's been change in all those areas but we are talking about systems and structures of inequality and just as it is hard to change racial inequalities hard to change the forms of inequality between different racial and ethnic groups it is hard to change forms of gender gender inequality it's certainly possible and it's also hard so in terms of what women and the women's movements should do um i feel slightly nervous answering that question because as a man it's not really my role how do we involve men in it like since you're you're the first man i'm sorry i want to say something you said how do we involve men in it sometimes when we're having this conversation on on bigger spaces you hear men say things like uh it feels war. like they, say, they use the word gender, gender wars, and they say yes. that we are exaggerating. But I think it's because men do not see us as people enough. I say that because when it becomes their sisters or their mothers, they say things like, oh, when my dad died, we had to go to the village to do X, Y, Z rights. And we think it's ridiculous. Or when something happens to someone that is very close to them, then they understand the fight. And I say things like, is it that we're not people enough? You should see us as women. We don't necessarily have to be your mothers, your wives, your sisters before you understand our struggles or use words or see us or, or have see us as human as beings, see us as like human beings deserving of rights. exactly so how do you think we can involve men in it i know that you cannot give us how you cannot um you cannot mansplain you cannot mansplain what women should do for the movement so how do you think we can involve men more in the movement so they see that oh there's a, there's a problem and then it tries to work towards a fix for it Sure. Look, um, the, the first thing I should say is that I'm really pleased, I'm really glad to be part of a growing number of men around the world who are joining with women to challenge gender inequalities. And there are a growing number of men in countries across the world, including countries in Africa and elsewhere, who have realised that they have a personal stake. They have a personal stake in challenging sexism, in challenging patriarchy, and in joining with women to build um, communities and societies based on gender equality. And, you know, one question is, well, how do men come to that? Why do some men come to believe that they should support feminism, that we should support women's rights and work with women? 
And one key influence is listening to women. That we often, for some men, it is they are close to a particular woman, uh, a wife, a girlfriend, a sister, a daughter, a mother, and they hear something about her life and about women's lives. But of course, we want men to care not only about the women they know, but about the women they will never know, the women they will never meet, and to develop a kind of fundamental respect for women's human rights, as you have described. Another reason why men come to a support for feminism is principle, political principle, a belief in social justice, or a religious or spiritual belief in fairness or democracy, or an involvement in other progressive political struggles, anti-racist and anti-apartheid struggles, other kinds of political struggles and so on. And so there are growing numbers of men who are joining um, and contributing to feminist movements as male allies. And I very much believe that men have a vital role to play in ending gender inequalities. And one of the reasons that's true is the problem of gender inequality is actually much more a problem of men than it is a problem of women. Because men tend to have um, poorer attitudes, more sexist attitudes towards gender issues than women. Now, of course, women, some women behave in ways that maintain gender inequalities, but men do much more of that. And so it's especially important that we engage men and that men play a role. And in fact, um, if I, as a man, talk about gender inequalities to a male audience, I will be listened to much more easily than a woman saying exactly the same thing. You know, men are socialized to care about men and to listen to men's voices more than women's. And that means that um, men can play a particularly powerful role. But we also, we men, also need to amplify women's voices, to invite other men to listen to women. And to and we need sometimes to, to literally hand the microphone to women so that you know women can speak and we can encourage other men to listen. I haven't said a whole lot about how we can engage men in building gender equality, but I hope I've given you a sense that it's an absolutely vital thing for us to do. I completely agree. You know, speaking of men listening to men more on this in this conversation, sometimes in our own spaces, if a man, if if women discuss breastfeeding, for example, we say, "Oh, it's really breastfeeding is really hard. This and this happens when I breastfeed." And we're talking about struggles with breastfeeding, for example. You know, there's always this discourse of what do they mean? You know, a man can just say. I witnessed my wife breastfeed for two years and it was the hardest thing. And then they listened to, to him. that man. So all of the conversations we have been having, like amongst women, explaining how hard breastfeeding is, postpartum and everything, it feels like we are exaggerating. But a man would come and he would, a man could be like, oh, I get you. And I, so we're looking at this man like, didn't you understand what we said earlier? But it's like, they feel a sense of what's the sense you know men tend to listen more, more to, to men than you know, like women that's, and, and that's why i think that allies that like teach because an ally to the feminist movement so i i feel that allies should speak to other men like address sexism and all of that it, with men because you see some male allies they come into the feminist space and they speak over women they don't listen and they want and they take up space but like okay we know we're going through right and we, we need help but men would not listen to us. They will listen to other men. So I, I feel that if you're a man and an ally and you feel that, oh yes, I understand gender uh, inequality. Like I feel that the best thing is for you to speak to other men yes. 
and that's and that's one of the reasons why I'm very like very happy when we asked you a question that you could have said, oh, women do this, and then you were like, oh no, this is what this is uh, like knowing your place in the feminist movement. It's really it's really awesome. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, look, that, that's really fascinating to hear. And uh, I mean, I think I think some men, for some men, it does make a difference if they listen carefully to women's voices and women's experience. Certainly some men in my country have become advocates against men's violence against women by listening to women and listening to women's stories of you know being the victim survivors of sexual violence or domestic violence. But I agree with you that those dynamics you've described also mean that men will sometimes listen much more readily to men. And when a man comes to me and says, what can I do? What can I do to stop men's violence against women or to address sexism? The first thing I would say is start with yourself. Start with your own behavior and your treatment of the women and girls around you. and Make sure that as far as you can, you are behaving in non-violent and respectful and gender equitable ways in your own lives. In other words, start with your own house, put your own house in order. But then second thing that men can do is start to speak up, particularly to challenge other men, to challenge other men's sexism, other men's violent or violent supportive behavior. So the second thing men can do is be active bystanders, starting to challenge the sexist comments and the jokes and so on that we hear around us, particularly from other men. But the third thing men can do is join in political action, join in collective struggles. In other words, support women's movements and anti-violence movements through our money, through our time, through who we vote for, and so on, and start to contribute to the wider social change that we know we need to end these systems of inequality. Thank you so much for that, um, for that robust explanation of what men should do. So yeah, like it's very um, evident that you're redefining masculinity like it's very it's, it's a very pivotal step towards a healthier society so how do you think we can promote um positive masculinity and then reshape the norms of the society so that we have a more gender equal society when we use the term we have to be clear about how we use the term masculinity and i use the term masculinity for the meanings we give to being a man and the meanings given to being a man are different in different cultures, in different countries, and they, they have changed over time. They're different now from what they were 100 years ago and so on. But in many countries, in, in fact, every country in the world, I think, there is one dominant model, one especially influential model of how to be a man. And that model typically involves um, being a man is about being tough, being strong, being heterosexual, being the head of the household, being stoic, um, and so on. And some people call that model toxic masculinity, you can call it sexist masculinity, or patriarchal masculinity, and so on. And we've already heard about the ways that that model of masculinity does harm. It's limiting for boys and men ourselves, and it's also implicated in, it's involved in gender inequalities gender inequalities to do with violence against women, to do with sexism and so on. So we need to change it. We need to somehow change the models of masculinity we have. And I think there are three things we need to do. First of all, we have to tell the world, we have to highlight um, for everyday men and women and others in our communities, the harms of that model of masculinity. 
Um, there's some research in Australia that uh, focused on the man box. So rather than using the term toxic masculinity, it talks about the man box. And this research highlights the harm, the damage that the man box, man box does to men, to women, to children, to others. So we need to alert people to the harms of the man box. The second thing we need to do is weaken its grip, weaken its influence or its grip in our culture. So for example, we can turn up the volume, turn up the volume on the actual diversity, the actual diversity there is among many men and boys. Because many men and boys live lives that are more diverse, more complex than that model of toxic masculinity, that model of the man box that is out there. And as part of this, we have to also get men talking. We have to get boys in schools talking and men in churches and men in sports and workplaces talking about the messages they got about being a man. What was good about those messages about being a man? What was negative or constraining? But the third thing we have to do, and perhaps the most important thing, is to provide some kind of positive alternative, some kind of positive, healthy alternative to the man box or to toxic masculinity. And we have to make um, visible to boys and men positive models of how to be a man, boys, because boys and men cannot be what they cannot see. We need positive role models. That means positive role models in boys and men's families, um, in the media, in movies, in TV, uh, in politics, uh, in churches, in sports, and so on. And there's, there's debate over um, what we call that. Do we call it healthy masculinity? Do we call it positive masculinity? Some people say, why should we call it masculinity at all? Because the qualities that we see as positive, qualities like nonviolence, like respect, like compassion, and so on, these are qualities that are good for men and boys, but they're also good for women and girls. So some people say, well, why do we call it, why do you want to call it healthy masculinity at all? Um, I think we should talk about healthy masculinity or positive masculinity, um, partly because many boys and men are still invested in, still care about being seen as real men, as proper men. So if we can redefine what it means to be a real man or a proper man, using notions of healthy masculinity or positive masculinity, then we can make positive change. Um, but so we have to have a positive vision for men and boys, uh, which is based on equality, which is diverse. We need diverse ways of being a man. Uh, and we need, to, um, we need to actively encourage those models of healthy or positive masculinity among men and boys in the community. Thank you so much, Dr. Floyd. This, this has been very, very insightful. And I love words like compassion, empathy, kindness. In my mind, in my head, it's a human being thing, but it's unfair that these qualities are only attributed to women because men are supposed to be in some sort of way just because they are men. And I think it's really unfair. And I think that's a lot of pressure, especially on the boy child. I'm gonna give an example. In a society like ours, if a woman has a boy, and six girls and she's a widow or maybe a single mom or anything if anybody from the african society visits for example you hear people use phrase like oh he's the man of the house even yes. if the, even if the boy is four even if it's even, if, even if it's the last child you hear so you're looking at his elder siblings 40 41 30 16 they are just there and then someone is calling a four-year-old boy the head of the house where does that leave the mother 
I mean, in my, I, I'm a mom, so I know I brought this child into this world. So now imagine someone telling me, oh, my son is the head of the house. Where does that leave me? I'm a woman. I, I think that's erasure. And it's it's really unfair, really. It's really unfair. And we thank you for the we thank you for the work you're doing in ending violence. And we hope that we have more young boys being active bystanders. If you see something, say something. You watch some viral videos where a couple of men or group of men are assaulting yeah, a lady, harassing a lady, and you see some men who just stand until maybe it gets really violent. Then it doesn't step in. then they step in. It doesn't necessarily have to end in a punch before a man or a young boy can step in say you know what what you're doing is wrong cut it off it's really unfair and it's, it makes really it makes life really harder for women and girls and we thank you again for the work you're doing and we're so grateful that you found time to speak with us thank you so much thank dr so Michael. Much. it's my pleasure and it was uh, my pleasure too uh, to hear your insights and to hear some some of your reflections about the positive roles men can play, the mistakes it's easy for men to make, and so on. So yeah, I wish we could talk for longer, but thank you very much for this conversation. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Thank you really so much. This. Thank you. And we look forward to having you again. Yeah, more yes. conversations. Yes. Please, thank yes, so do that. As we conclude this episode, we are reminded that change begins with conversations and the seed of transformation are sown through understanding. Indeed, Rianot, we are honored to have Professor Michael Flood guide us in this crucial conversation. And to our listeners, remember that we are the beginning of a journey to challenge and reshape narratives. Okay, guys, that wraps up this episode of the Counter Narrative Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Let's continue to question challenge and amplify our voices as we move forward stay curious stay informed and remember this is just the beginning of a new narrative